The following is a message by Dr. John Fesco from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Let's bow together in a brief word of prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we are grateful that you have gathered us here this morning on this, the first day of the semester. We pray, O Lord, as that we uh, embark upon the journey of the upcoming 13 weeks, that you would be with us. But we also pray that as we take a few moments here to reflect upon your word, that you would speak to us through it, uh, that you would help us to see Christ clearly in it, and that our desire would be to yield our service to uh, our great King. Uh, for the glory and majesty of his name, and for the edification of his people, the church. We pray and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, yes, I am not Dr. Godfrey. Uh, Dr. Godfrey uh, phoned in this morning, indicating that he was rather ill and was not able to perform his duties of leading us in this inaugural chapel of the spring semester. And so uh, he asked if I would be able to take his place. And so if it seems like I'm unprepared, it's because I am. Um, and I'm sure that Dr. Godfrey would have uh, given you some inspiring words uh, with which to begin this semester, but instead I'll simply just give you some words. Uh, so <clears throat> keeping that in mind, uh, in keeping with the, uh, the, 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 the semester's theme uh, for this, uh, the chapel addresses, which is the Exodus or the Exodus motif, I'd ask if you would please turn in your Bible to the sixth chapter of Mark, Mark chapter six, and we'll be reading verses 30 through 44, which is uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000. So Mark chapter six, <clears throat> beginning in verse 30, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to all sit down in groups on the gra green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Uh, beloved, I think when we come to this passage, I think the tendency certainly in the broader church 
is merely to look at the miracle. I mean, how often do we find ourselves seeing somebody produce enough food to feed 5,000 people out of a simple amount of food, five loaves uh, and two fish? I think in other gospel accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, we not only focus upon the miracle, but I think as often as the case, people often focus upon the little boy who provided this uh, material so that Jesus uh, could feed the 5,000. And I've heard the the faith of the little boy uh, greatly extolled over the years. And I think rather than great faith, I think the little boy had perhaps greater entrepreneurial intentions Uh, you show up to a crowd with five loaves and two fish, it's probably because you're looking to make a quick buck uh, rather than to provide Jesus with any food to feed the crowd. But rather than than just simply look at the surface and be satisfied with the idea that, okay, well, Jesus has performed a great miracle, he's fed 5,000 people, Uh, let's move on to the next miracle so that we can see uh, what Jesus is up to, I think that we often fail to recognize that this is a passage that is replete. I mean, it is full. Uh, It is just burdened and laden with Old Testament imagery taken from the Exodus. It's just that we may not realize it at first glance. So uh, this morning what I'd like us to do is reflect, reflect briefly upon this passage so that we can identify those elements that are connected with Israel's Old Testament exodus so that we can see that Jesus is, quite, is making a quite fantastic claim here ultimately to be Israel's one true shepherd. And I think if we realize this, then there is far more here than simply just a miracle of feeding 5,000 people from a few uh, loaves of bread and a few fish, as incredible as such an action might be. So often I think that we read the New Testament and we wonder, why doesn't Jesus just come right out and say, it's me, you know, I'm God in the flesh, I'm here to save you. And what this passage I think will show us is that indeed he does do that, in fact, in a very rich and Old Testament laden way. Now the first element of this uh, passage I want us to consider is the location, the location of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And unfortunately this is something, at least for people in the broader church, that they can't quite appreciate because you have to read the Greek text in order to see the connection. But Jesus in verse 31 and the disciples go and retreat to a desolate place in the Greek, the Aramos which is the same word in the Septuagint that is used for the wilderness, the location of Israel's Old Testament wanderings after uh, their redemption from Egypt. But it's also the same word that's used in Mark chapter 1, verse 12, uh, for the location of Jesus' wanderings when he was led uh, into the wilderness. Now remember, for every first century reader of the scriptures, especially one tuned in, dialed into the vocabulary, the imagery, and the language of the Old Testament, if they heard the word wilderness, I think it likely would have put them on a trajectory to connect to the Old Testament exodus. 
would have put them on a trajectory to connect to the Old Testament Exodus. Like so many key words in our own context, if you say the word White House, you think president. Uh, if you think and say uh, perhaps uh, uh, football team, say San Diego Chargers, you think losing, right? Uh, you know, there are certain automatic connections between certain words, all right? And in this particular case, you say wilderness, you immediately, I think, would be drawn into the Old Testament exodus. A second element connected with this text is Mark's description of the crowd. In verse 34, we read, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion upon them. But this is far more than just simply Mark waxing on poetically about Jesus' compassion for the crowds, as much uh, as this certainly is reflective of that. Again, it's evocative of language that is drawn from the Old Testament Exodus. In Numbers chapter 27... Numbers chapter 27, beginning in verse 15, we hear the following. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd." Here, Moses was telling uh, the Lord, please appoint a leader over the people so that they would not be like sheep without a shepherd. And so it was God's intention to give his people a shepherd, one to lead them. And so when Jesus said, and he looked out upon the crowds, and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, I think he's uh, evoking this Old Testament Exodus imagery I think likely against the backdrop of the faithless leadership of the religious leaders of his day. In Jeremiah, for example, chapter 50, verse 6, my people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. You see, from the earliest days, even during the time of the Old Testament prophets, uh, the prophets condemned the religious leaders for being wayward shepherds, leading the people astray. And so here Jesus looks out upon the crowd and he recognizes and he says they are like sheep without a shepherd. But the fact that he describes them in such a manner not only contrasts his own leadership, his own shepherding of the flock of Israel against the um, poor leadership, the wicked leadership of the leaders of his day, also evoking this Old Testament exodus imagery from uh, Israel's old uh, wanderings. But in various portions of scripture, such as in Psalm 78, David is likened to a shepherd, a shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd of Israel. But in particular, it was Ezekiel the prophet, who in Ezekiel chapter 34 spoke of a day when Yahweh himself would shepherd his people. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verses 12 and following, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep 
I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel. Here's Jesus feeding them in the wilderness in the mountains of Israel. I will feed them by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with a good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. So that when Jesus says they are like a sheep without a shepherd... And he begins to show compassion to them. And he begins to feed them. And not just simply feed them with bread, but he feeds them with the bread of life. He feeds them by teaching them. He's taking up this Old Testament imagery of God leading his people Israel like a shepherd leading his flock as he led them out of Egypt on their exodus. But at this time in redemptive history, it is not the shadows that we look back upon. It is not anticipatory events that are one day going to come to fruition. But rather, we are looking at the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament types and shadows. No longer are we looking at Moses or the prophet or David, the king, but rather we are looking at the one true prophet, priest, and king. We are looking at Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. The third element in this text is that Christ feeds the crowd, which seems like an obvious enough fact. But according to verse 42, it says that they ate and were satisfied which if the Old Testament Exodus backdrop is what informs our understanding of this text, then I think surely this is evocative of the satisfaction of the people of Israel when they ate the manna from heaven and that they were satisfied. Exodus 16, 18, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And then a fourth element here in this text, so the location, Jesus leading them like a shepherd. Uh, Thirdly, Jesus feeding the crowd. And now fourthly here, Jesus divides up Israel. According to verse 40, we see that Jesus divided them into groups by hundreds and fifties. I mean, if this was just an ordinary event, then there was likely no need to explain uh, according to what divisions they were divided. But yet, the fact that they are divided into hundreds and fifties, again, echoes Moses' division of the people. Exodus chapter 18, verse 21 Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties. So here, I think, with this Old Testament backdrop of the Exodus, we can take a step back and look at all the pieces of the puzzle. 
crowd of Israelites comes out into what Mark calls the wilderness and is shepherded by Christ, one like Moses, but especially like Yahweh, as he is leading them, if you will, on, uh, on, a, on a second exodus event. Not only does Christ, the shepherd, teach them, but he, as in the first exodus, divides them, feeds them, and then even collects 12 baskets of leftovers. I think that the 12 baskets of leftovers is not a coincidence, but is a part of the miracle. There could have been 11 baskets, there could have been 13 or 56, whatever the case might have been, but there were 12. There is so much more here going on in the text than simply just feeding a hungry crowd. Christ is telling Israel, and by way of extension, you and me, that he is the true shepherd of Israel. Remember the entire trajectory of the Old Testament. It's not there just simply as a ragbag collection of stories. It's not there just to give us uh, good morals like Aesop's fables. But rather it is there to point us to Christ. So that against this backdrop of the Old Testament exodus, when we hear words like these from Christ, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is saying very loud and clear through his actions as well as throughout, through his words that he is the one true shepherd. He is the one true shepherd of Jew and Gentile alike, of those who look to him by faith alone, by grace alone. And he is the one alone who lays down his life for us so that we might have life. Indeed, beloved, the exodus that Christ leads us on is no mere exodus from physical bondage as liberating and as beneficial as such an exodus might be. But rather, our exodus our liberation is one from the bondage of Satan, sin, and death. That we can look at the law knowing that it no longer has a claim upon us. That it no longer holds us under its curse. Because Christ has come to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. And we have received the imputation of his righteousness to our account. Not only that, but we receive the forgiveness of sins as he has suffered the penalty, the full penalty, uh, the curse of the law, so that we would not have to suffer. Unlike the wicked shepherds in Christ's day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes, Jesus laid down his life for the sheep that we might have life. Beloved, as you continue your preparation uh, as this academic semester begins, do not forget that Christ is our great shepherd. Do not forget what our great shepherd has done for us. Foretold before, uh, for long ages before we ever even set foot on this earth. Foretold in the exodus. Fulfilled in Christ's ministry and now being carried out as we, as Christ's sheep, are, are being led by Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, on that final and great 
eschatological exodus out from under the dominion of Satan, sin, and death. Forget not who our shepherd is and forget not who you, who you serve. Forget not the great redemption that we have received in Christ and especially forget not the great redemption that you will preach, teach, and share with others, not only in the church, but beyond. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father God, we are grateful that indeed you have sent us a faithful shepherd, one who has laid down his life for us, wayward and wandering sheep. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to see Christ clearly, that we would rejoice and give thanks for this wonderful work of redemption. We also pray, O Lord, that you would give us faithfulness, that we would no longer wander, but rather we would, through your grace, faithfully follow the great shepherd of us, our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. We also pray that as we embark upon this semester, that you would give us fidelity, discipline, and diligence in our studies, that we would serve you well, especially in our preparations as we look to, uh, to, to lead others and to point others to Christ, our great shepherd. In the end, we pray that together as a body, we would bring glory to your name. And we long and look forward to that day when we will cross the threshold of the Jordan and enter into uh, the promised land itself of the new Jerusalem. Until that day, bless us, we pray, with your presence. Lead us and guide us and comfort us and take care of us. We pray and ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.